So, what I want to go into a little bit in the talk today is something uh, quite amazing, quite amazing and quite profound and a little bit, a little bit difficult, a little bit complicated. Uh, in a way, I also want to expand on and elaborate on some of the themes and strands that I've uh, uh, that have come up in in the, the talks through through the retreat. What I'm also talking about is something that's not quite linear. In I'm describing going into a process that's not quite linear. So in planning the talk, I realized actually what I'm doing is kind of spiraling around something um, versus going through it. And so it might sound, I don't know, uh, a little bit difficult. Bear in mind that it's being taped. If you, uh, there's always you can revisit that. just to start with what's actually a very obvious statement, a really obvious statement. All suffering, all difficulty that we experience in life is in relationship to experience. On one level that's completely obvious. All suffering any difficulty is in relationship to experience. It's in relationship to experience. The experience that we have, experience that we don't have, that we want, that we did have, that we didn't have, that we think we might have, all suffering is in relationship to experience. Incredibly obvious on one level. There's something in that that's immensely important and and it points to something extremely profound. Might there be something fundamental to all experience that we need to understand? All suffering is in relationship to experience. So there's a word in the Indian spiritual traditions, maya, maya, M-A-Y-A, maya. And this spiritual concept existed, pre-existed, I'm pretty sure, before the Buddha. And it really translates as uh, illusion. Illusion. We get our word magic from it. And the idea uh, that was around was that this world of appearances and experiences is illusory. It's an illusion. This was quite a popular notion. It's an illusion. And before the Buddha, the idea was that if we could uh, transcend the illusion of all this appearance, that in that transcending we would, we would know freedom, we would be freed from samsara. That was a very popular notion, it still is today in a lot of circles, and actually the Buddha used it as well. He picked up on, on, on that word and he used it with, with slightly different connotations. So there's a passage, um, listen. he's talking to a bunch of monks, so... Suppose, monks, a magician or a magician's apprentice should hold a magic show at the four crossroads, and a keen-sighted man should see it, ponder over it, and reflect on it radically. Even as he sees it, ponders over it, and reflects on it radically, he would find it empty, he would find it hollow, he would find it void of essence. What essence, monks, could there be in a magic show? 
Even so, monks, whatever consciousness, be it past, future or present, in oneself or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a monk, a practitioner, sees it, ponders over it and reflects on it radically. And even as he sees it, ponders over it and reflects on it radically, he would find it empty. He would find it hollow. He would find it void of essence. What essence, monks, could there be in consciousness? Then he goes on and he says, forms, body and other forms, are like a mass of foam, feeling, vedna, like a, like a bubble. Perception is like a mirage and mental formations like a plantain tree. Plantain tree is a tree, looks like a palm tree, but you just keep peeling off the leaves, there's actually nothing inside. Consciousness is a magic show, a juggler's trick entire. So going through all that, he's basically outlined the whole of what we might call ourself, form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness, but also the whole of what we, we the, whole, the totality of our experience. And using different similes and different words, he said the whole, the whole show, this whole show of self and the world is, is illusory, in using different similes. So I'm saying something quite strong. It's a very, very strong statement. Sometimes we can see this. We can see it at a grosser level. So this word papancha, for, for those of you that were around at the beginning of the retreat and the, t- the talk on thought, we have this papancha where the mind just grabs hold of something, one little thing, and then starts shaking it up and making something really complicated about it. Proliferating, complicating. And when we step out of that papancha, when it calms down, we look back and we say, what on earth was all that about? It just seemed like this huge storm of complexity and we were so convinced of something, we believed something, and afterwards we just said, God, it was, it was all an illusion. It was all just, just a storm in a teacup. And it's obvious later, when you're in the middle of it, it's sometimes hard to see. That's a kind of, that's mostly how we use the word papancha, and it's a kind of extreme end of what papancha means. But the word papancha, and I alluded to very briefly in that talk, at its kind of more subtle level means to make manifold, which means to make many, to make many forms. So this papancha is somehow creating many forms in the world, many forms in our experience, many things. So this is very, very important for the Buddha in, in, in terms of his, his deep teaching. We need to, we need to understand this process. What it comes down to is understanding perception. We need to understand the way we see and the way we have experience. All experience. All, all, all experience. Something needs to be understood there, a very radical, deep level. The uh, way we see the world and the way we have experience. And understand how that how our experience is something that the mind builds. The mind kind of fabricates it. Okay, so this is... And in fabricating, the word fabricating implies, even in English, it implies something of an illusion. It's just fab- it's a fabrication, like it's a lie. 
So we need to understand that. And the Buddha also points to the possibility of not engaging in that process of building fabrications and illusions and actually tasting what is completely beyond that process of perception, completely beyond what we usually uh, mean when we say experience, completely beyond, to both understanding it and tasting what's beyond. Again, a statement like that is going to land in a lot of different places, and that's, that's usual, and that's normal, that's completely okay. From a Dharma perspective, from a deep Dharma perspective, it's important to point out that whatever difficulty or suffering we have in life, whatever difficulty or suffering we have, fundamentally it arises from a misunderstanding of our experience. So sometimes oh, I could have a little bit more love, I could be a bit more kind to myself, I could be this or that. All, all true at a certain level, but fundamentally, fundamentally, all difficulty, all problem, all sense of suffering arises from misunderstanding the nature of experience, misunderstanding what's real and what isn't quite real in the way that we think it is or feel it is. So this word Nibbana... Uh, Actually means it's derived. It means unbinding, and we say, "I'm not, you know, I'm not really interested in nibbana." But remembering whatever suffering fundamentally arises from that mis- misconception, misunderstanding of reality, and to nibbana, we could say, is to unbind the way we've bound that that sense of reality together, that sense of appearance together. And to some degree or other, letting go of suffering is unbinding, unbinding. So, maya. And this word maya in Sanskrit, the word ma, uh, the root of maya, the word ma uh, actually means to measure. There is now... There could be a connection there. Uh, Dharmically there is, I don't know if linguistically there is. Ma is to measure. We get our words, we got magic from Maya, we get perhaps, I don't know, perhaps we get magnitude and magnify from, from Ma. So we can see, we think about measuring, measuring. Measuring and comparing and how much this is part of our life as human beings. And we can see that if I compare and I measure this self in relationship to other selves, there is suffering involved in that. And we all know the pain of this. We all know how painful it is. Do I measure up? Am I good enough? Am I worse than? Will I be okay? Do you think I'm okay? Suffering, pain, pain. At that level, it's quite obvious. And if it's not obvious, it soon will be. We, even if we measure up very well, look at me, I compare very well. Sooner or later, someone arrives that doesn't agree with that assessment. And they say, actually, you're a bit of a bozo. Or a nincompoop, or whatever it is. And then the whole thing just falls apart. We're addicted to measuring self with others. But this measuring of the self with others is actually only part of, of our addiction to measuring, you could say. It's only part of it. And this measuring is actually part, it's one part of the perceptual process. It's one part of how we 
create experience anyway. It's one part of what's going on. When we experience anything at all, inner or outer, measuring is part of that. What could possibly be the relation? Measuring and maya, measuring and illusion. There's a statement that Sariputta, one of the foremost, the wisest of the Buddha's disciples said. He said, one time he said, Kilesas, which means greed, aversion, delusion, kilesas, greed, aversion, delusion, are makers of measurement and makers of signs. This is difficult to understand. Um, signs means appearances. Appearances outside, the clock is a sign, the bell is a sign, all this is sign. Outer signs and inner signs, even in terms of meditation experiences. So he's saying, greed, aversion, and delusion are makers of measurement and makers of signs. Something very, very profound uh, in this statement. So let's, let's take that apart a little bit. Delusion. If, if this is an illusion, and if I believe that illusion, that's what I might call delusion. That's what might be called delusion. The believing of the illusion, avidya, avidya in Pali. And if I believe all this world of appearances, well, some of this world of experience I'm going to want more, I'm going to be invested in. There's a measurement. Once I believe it, I start measuring. I like this, I want more of it. How long is it going to go on for? I don't like that. There's there's a measuring that comes with, with avidya, with believing it. The avidya feeds the measurement. We can see too, when there's greed and aversion present, uh, we could call greed and aversion together, we could call them clinging, clinging, movement towards greed and pushing away aversion together, clinging. When there's clinging, uh, I've got a pain in my knee, aversion, uh, and then I start to measure is it getting more or, or less? Is it hanging out? Is it going to be longer or, or less? There's a kind of measuring that comes with clinging. Clinging feeds measurement, we could say. This, yeah. <coughs> clinging feeds measurement. Measurement also feeds clinging. Measurement also feeds clinging. Once I start discriminating between these things, this is better, that's, that's worse. This is, this is more of what I want, that's less. This is, will go on longer, etc. Once there's measuring come in, the clinging gets fed. So the, the, the feeding is running both ways. You understand? Mutually dependent. Now, this could really be a stretch in language, but clinging, pushing away... Uh, or pulling towards, repelling or uh, bringing towards myself. Ma, maya, is it possible we get the word magnet? I don't know. Maybe it's a stretch. Dharmically, uh, it's important. These things are connected. I don't know if they are linguistically, but they're connected. So there's greed and aversion, aversion as clinging, and delusion, uh, which if you fill that out a bit more, delusion, really we could say is an attachment to conceiving of a self and things in the world. Here's Rob, and here's the microphone, and here's the floor, and here's uh, Gavin, and here's uh, 
a self and a world of things. And attachment to conceiving the self and the world of things as existing in a real way, as if they have some independent existence, independent of the way the mind looks at them. That attachment to that conceiving is what delusion is fundamentally. Now there's another word in, in uh, Pali and Sanskrit called mana, mana, related to the word maya, same root, ma, and it means uh, exactly that, it means conceiving. Conceiving, I don't know, in English, imagining. So something's going on here. All these four factors are kind of, you could say, coming together and feeding each other. The world of appearance, maya, the delusion, mana, the conceiving of things and this world of appearance, the believing uh, that it has an independent reality, then the clinging and the measurement. They're all mutually uh, feeding. They're uh, this teaching of dependent origination, dependent arising that the Buddha talks about. It's not a process that's happening first this, and then this, and then this, and then this. This is why it's so radical, one of the reasons why it's so radical. These things are mutually feeding each other, not in time. Not in time. So you could take those four things, and you could kind of, a bit like a cube, you could look at it any way and see that any one feeds all the other three. And any, any piece of this square feeds all, all the others. Yeah? Um, so, for example, um, when I conceive in a certain way, I, um, I'm invested in uh, clinging, invested in measuring. The more I, the more I conceive and, and the more I cling, the more I measure. The more I measure, it might be feeding this whole appearance more. When I cling more to the pain in the knee, it actually gets, it feels more substantial, more vivid. This is really worth reflecting on. Take, taking this apart and seeing how any, any angle, any corner will feed any, any of the others. This measuring piece is, is interesting. If, for instance, let's take pleasure and pain. We think of pleasure and pain, we don't usually see that pleasure and pain are in a relationship to each other in a way that's mutually mutually dependent, in the same way that left and right are. So where there's left, there is immediately right. There is imme- the, the concept left implies right, and the concept right implies left. L- when there's left, there is right. When there's right, there is left. When there's pain, there is pleasure. When there's pleasure, there is pain. They, they, ex- they coexist, and they depend on each other as a duality for their existence. If I don't see that, and I conceive of them, which is very normal, I conceive of them as having separate existences, independent existences, that conceiving causes me to invest more, to measure more, to cling more, which feeds the whole substantiality of this. This is what I'm going I'm to wanting to go into. But the measuring, the measuring is part of delineating and demarcating how the mind divides reality into things. It measures between things through ignorance. 
And it's one part of the, our perceptual process, one part of what goes on. So through this mutual reinforcing, this is happening all the time, through this mutual reinforcing, the veil of illusion is actually being woven thicker through the clinging, through the conceiving, through the measuring. The, the veil of seeming reality is getting woven thicker. Now this is not an abstract theory. Uh, I don't know, again, how it sounds and how it lands in different places. The amazing thing is that we can actually see this and, and we need to really see this. Uh, it's not something abstract, it's not a theory. We could say the root of it all, the root of it all is um, conceiving. Uh, but that doesn't still mean that it's the one that's first in time, it's in a way the most fundamental. So the Buddha said, one who has practiced well is rich in wisdom and has escaped beyond the conceivings or the proclaimings, the deemings of the mistaken mind. The mind says, this is this and that's that and this is how it is. And one rich in wisdom has escaped beyond the conceivings and the proclamations of of the mistaken mind. So it's easy, if we say conceiving is the problem, it's easy to blame language or blame thought. But the problem is actually much, much deeper than that. Sheep have this problem. Uh, Slugs have this problem. Uh, It's something that's way, way deeper than thought or language. Way more kind of rooted in in consciousness. So there's a very odd passage that's from Mahakachayana, one of the foremost disciples of the Buddha. And he said, it's strange language, If certain conditions come together, it is possible, he said, that one will delineate a delineation of contact. So it's a deliberately odd phrase. Delineate a delineation of contact. Contact means here's the I and the consciousness and it meets a form and I see something and that's contact. It's possible that one will delineate a delineation of contact. When there is a delineation of contact... It's possible that one will delineate a delineation of unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, of Vedana, which we talked about earlier in the retreat. When there's a delineation of Vedana, it's possible that one will delineate a delineation of perception. And etc., etc., until you've got the whole mess of suffering, papancha and suffering. And then he says, if, if those conditions are not there, it's actually not possible that one would delineate a delineation of contact, etc., and one would not arrive at the suffering. It's a strange way of putting it, strange way of putting it. And the, putting it like that, it is possible that one will delineate a delineation. It's pointing to exactly this artificial delineation process that the mind, meaning the pre-conscious mind, the pre uh, Preconception, pre-thinking mind is creating between things and saying this is this, this is that's that's tomorrow, this is yesterday, this is now, and creating this division. Um, and there's something it does in singling out things and events and saying that's that and something else is something else. Something is artificial going on in the mind to do that. There's another difficult passage. I know know this this is quite difficult to understand. There's another difficult passage where the the, Mahakachana has taken it through in a certain kind of this, then this, then this. But remember, it's not 
it's not a linear order in time. In another passage, the Buddha traces a, a, the same process, but reverse order of, of causality, just to show it's not this, then this, then this. And he says, dukkha, this suffering, comes from measuring and craving, to paraphrase. It comes from measuring and craving. We hold this better, worse, more, less, etc. Measuring and craving gives rise to dukkha. Where does that come from? It comes from the feeling, the sense, that things are appealing or unappealing. That uh, this is nice and this is not nice. Where does the sense even of things feeling nice or not nice come from? It's a very fundamental question. Why is it we even experience things that way? He said, excuse me, he said, uh, this craving and measuring comes both from the sense that things are appealing and unappealing and also from the sense uh, of seeing existence and non-existence with respect to things. So this, what I was talking about, this delusion, seeing existence and non-existence, say it exists and then it's gone out of existence or it doesn't exist. This uh, delusion of of the real existence of things. So seeing existence and this sense of appealing and unappealing give rise to measuring craving which gives rise to suffering. Both of them come from contact. Contact, he says, comes from name and form. It's complex language, I know, but name and form means the movement of the mind to um, shape our perception of the world and perception of pleasant and unpleasant. The movements of the mind to shape the perception. This is actually a dialogue that he's having very early on in his teaching career. It sounds quite abstract now, but one really gets a sense of the, the incredible freshness and radicality of what he was teaching. So a seeker comes to him and he asks all these questions. And he keeps tracing about, well, what does, what does that give rise to? What does that give rise to? Where does that come from? And he said, so all of this comes from the way the mind shapes perception and a sense of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And so this seeker asks, for one arriving at what does all this disappear? For one arriving at what does pleasure and pain disappear he says lovely says tell me this my heart is set on knowing how they disappear my heart is set on knowing how they disappear and the Buddha says something he says one not percipient of perceptions in other words one not perceiving not percipient of aberrant perceptions in other words not hallucinating not unpercipient, not in a coma or totally unconscious, not percipient of what's disappeared, not remembering or having a, a memory of that. For one arriving at this, form disappears. Uh, for papancha and all the co- complications that come out of papancha, this making manifold, making complex, have their cause in perception. And he goes on to say, the sage, the wise one, ponders dependencies, reflects on this mutual dependence of all this, all these factors. And on, on knowing them, on understanding them, is released, is unbound, is, is freed, enlightened. So, 
So two things that are really important there. One is possible to go beyond perception, beyond this whole process, and also that in so doing, we need to really reflect on the way this is all getting built up, built up in this radical kind of mutually uh, feeding, mutually dependent way. So, how? How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? And people would ask the Buddha several times, what a tangle, what a mess, what a mess we find ourselves in. Who's going to untangle this tangle? That was the question people would ask. How we are in a tangle, who will untangle the tangle? And the Buddha gives several answers. How can we begin to, if it's even possible, move beyond perception or untangle this mutual, complex kind of spaghetti web of mutually reinforcing process that isn't even happening in time? So we've mentioned in a couple of the talks this uh, teaching of the three characteristics and it's one of the possible approaches that we might untangle some of this through. So to say again, these three characteristics, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, not self, not me, not mine. They are not ends. They are not arrival points so much like, oh, I've seen that things are impermanent, job done. I've seen that there is no self, job done, or whatever. Rather, they are beginnings of an avenue, or avenues, beginnings of an avenue. They are tools and ways of seeing ways of seeing, Um, ways of kind of having a lens to look at experience and that lens takes the consciousness on a journey that untangles all this, it untangles it if we use that lens and and we uh, take that journey. Why do they do that? Why, why would it be the case that sitting down and walking and just consistently seeing things as impermanent or suffering or not self would, would untangle things, untangle the whole nature of perception? It's interesting. Why would it do that? One of the reasons is because when we contemplate things in this way as anicca, dukkha, anatta, there is, hopefully, uh, with practice, there comes with that less clinging, less clinging. If I see that things are impermanent, I let go, I let go. Why cling? If I see all things in terms of impermanent, uh, unsatisfactory, not self, there's a kind of equality coming into the seeing. So I'm less invested in kind of measuring one thing better or worse or different. I like it, I don't like it, my favorite, I really... And it's just equal, all things are equal in being anicca, anatta, dukkha. There's an equality and a quietening of the measuring mind. You could, you could, to put it more poetically, you could say there's a kind of holy disinterest that comes in, into one's being in relationship to all experience. Just, everything's just impermanent, everything just... Just one becomes in a very alive and beautiful way disinterested, just disinterested, wholly disinterested. Just it's all it's all dukkha, it's all anatta, it's all impermanent. It's just just disinterested, wholly disinterested. There's a, there's a, a real beauty in that. 
Well, as we do that, we cling less, the suffering begins to drain out of experience. If one stays on that avenue, stays uh, true to that practice, and stays with it and keeps at it, something else begins to happen as it deepens, as it deepens. That is that experience itself begins to fade. It begins to dissolve, it begins to blur, it begins to kind of open up, become less substantial, dissolve a little bit. Very, very odd phenomenon at first seeming. So to do this, to reflect all things are impermanent, all things are duk- all things are unsatisfactory. When we hear that at first we could think how horrific to sit there, you know, reflecting <coughs> on that in relation to experience, how you know, that will make everything seem so kind of blah or grey or, or bleak or empty. Um, and it might seem that way from the outside, but actually it's not. Uh, when, when we do this, something very, very beautiful begins to open in the being. Very beautiful. It's like another quality begins to shine through experience. It's not so dependent on whether I like it or I don't or uh, whatever. Something else begins to show itself, not at all blah, bleak or grey. So there's a beautiful and very famous passage uh, from the third Zen patriarch. And um, it's the beginning of a very long poem. Um, Mostly we only hear the beginning, but I'm going to read the beginning. It says, different ways of practicing, say this one uh, dukkha, um, practicing seeing things as unsatisfactory. One way is just that, to see things as all things unsatisfactory, just letting go. They're all unsatisfactory. Another way is to actually um, be aware of this pushing away what I don't like and pulling towards me what I do like and and feeling that and learning to relax it and learning to just let that go. This is called faith in mind. And it says, many of you will have heard this before, the supreme way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, we could say when for and against are both absent, when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction between things, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. And beautiful, and it's pointing to something. Um, so we can take that that stanza on as a practice. What would it be in the sitting, in the walking, whenever, in the standing meditation? Sit, stand, walk, sitting there with an alive presence. It takes a certain amount of alive presence. You're present in the moment, and the attitude towards all experience, all experiences, no preference, no preference. Don't pick and choose, just equal. And the emphasis in that moment at that time is not so much on mindfulness, but on no preferences, no preferences, no preferences. Anything, 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 inner and outer, no preferences, no preferences. So it's a practice. It needs a certain level, a base level of sort of aliveness and presence. Otherwise, we're just kind of deluding ourselves. We're sitting in front of the TV, no preferences. (laughs) So a certain amount is, is required. If we do any of these practices, what we will find, if we, if we just plug away at them, 
for a little bit and get used to them as practice, what we will find is the suffering gets less. The suffering begins to go out of the experiences. And if we find that, keep at it, keep on with it. It's showing that we're on the right track. When the suffering goes, it shows we're on the right track. What too, though, is happening to the whole, as we do, whichever one we choose, impermanent, unsatisfactory, uh, anatta, not-self, or, or the, the no-preferences, whichever way of, of approach we take, what happens eventually to the magnitudes, what happens to the sense of the uh, solidity of experience to consciousness, what happens to that? This is an exploration, and it's... Um, it's, it's very radical. It's very um, counterintuitive, the whole thing. So there's impermanence, there's dukkha, which we can do a number of ways. There's this anatta, anatta practice. There's, there's another sutta where the Buddha, he starts by, by telling a kind of mythological story. And the story is that the gods, the devas, and the demons are uh, doing battle mega battle, war of the worlds kind of scenario. The gods, the good guys, and the demons, the bad guys. And eventually the devas, the gods, win, and they capture the uh, king of the demons, Vepachiti his name is, they capture him, and they bring him back to Saka, the ruler of the gods. And they imprison him, but the nature of his imprisonment is incredibly subtle. If the king of the demons, Vipachiti, if while he's there in front of the king of the gods, if he thinks, if he has the thought that the demons are good and the the gods are bad and he wants to go back to the, the land of the demons, if he has that thought, he feels himself imprisoned, wrapped and bound by bonds and, and uh, feeling uh, very uncomfortable physically. If he has the opposite thought, that actually, the, it's right, the gods are the good guys and I'd rather stay here, he actually perceives himself to feel uh, released from that prison and uh, lots of bliss. So his actual imprisonment is dependent on how he's thinking about the situation. There's a lot to that. I read it at first and was like, hmm? There's a lot to that. There's a lot to that. But then the Buddha goes on to say, if you think that's subtle, if you think that kind of imprisonment is subtle, the imprisonment of Mara, in other words, the imprisonment of, of life and death of samsara, is even more subtle than that. Any time we think, I am... Any time we conceive, I am this, I am that, I will be this, I will be that, I don't want to be... Any time any of that, any time we conceive, my true nature is to have a form, is beyond form, it will... Any time we conceive of the self in any way, he says... um, He said, these are construings, uh, uh, imaginings, perturbations, agitations, palpitations, 
throbbings. It's you know palpitant. The heart when it's palpitating. So to say I am, we're so used to it, we don't realize it's actually like having a little minor heart uh, seizure thing. <laughs> we're so used to it that we don't realize. Buddha says it's a palpitation. It's a perturbation. It's an agitation. It's a construing. It's a complication. It's a conceiving, and should be abandoned. He said it should be abandoned. And and so you should reflect, you should think to yourself, we will dwell with an awareness free of these construings, free of these construings. When we, when, when, again, all these are practices, a practice to contemplate things as impermanent, to, you know, in a continuous way, to practice seeing things as dukkha, practice no preferences, practice seeing things as not me, not mine. It's a real practice. We can develop those avenues of practice. When we do, what happens? A calmness, the being opens in a kind of calmness. Something opens up in the whole texture of experience things begin to become or appear less substantial, less substantial. They fade more and more and more and more. The uh, perception of things fades more and more. So in this sense, the original teachings of the Buddha are actually using dualities, particular dualities, a duality of suffering and not suffering, and what's unskillful ways of thinking and looking and what are skillful ways of thinking and looking, using those dualities to eventually go beyond perception and beyond any sense of duality, using duality to go beyond duality. And but it's, there, there is a sense, there is this practitioner, there is this, there is what is inferior in terms of states of mind, what is superior in terms of states of mind and then and there is complete escape from this entire field of cognition. Complete escape from the entire field of perceiving, cognition, knowing, uh, all that. Complete escape. So there is, within there is, better and worse. And there's the complete escapes. Using duality to go beyond duality. And we touched on this in some of the other talks. Actually using, one of the genius, one of the, yeah, things that made the Buddha such a genius was the way he would pick up certain concepts and use them, use those concepts as rafts to go beyond concepts. And this idea, I think I mentioned it in another talk, using a certain amount of conceptuality like a snake, eventually that snake eats its own tail. And the conceptuality that you're actually using begins to eat itself and dissolve itself. Using concepts to go beyond concepts. And the question for us is, which concepts lead to freedom? Which concepts just lead to more suffering and more imprisonment and more complication? That's a gazillion dollar question. Which concepts is it helpful to pick up? And which concepts we actually want to shun, really want to not go near, because they bind us and they will, uh, they will hurt. Eventually they will hurt. The Buddha uses this analogy, it's a raft. The teachings, teachings of dependent origination, any of the teachings are a raft uh, to take us to the other shore. We use that raft. We don't abandon the raft on this side of the shore or in midstream. But once we've gone beyond all this, understood all this, you can abandon it.
Let's fill this out a little bit more. Uh, particularly this, uh, the piece about anatta. Any self-view the Buddha's pointing at, I am, any self-view. So it's talk, certainly when there's a self-view in terms of personality and the big I am like, I am this or that personality. Um, but even any very subtle self-view. So about the most subtle self-view I could have is just that there is a subject, devoid of personality, devoid of any character, just a subject, a knowing, an awareness, and that which is known. Do you see that that's the most subtle kind of, uh, most refined kind of way you could conceive of self and the world? We usually conceive it much more, much more complicated and more built up than that. Um, me and my personality, my history, and my story, and my difficulties, and my hopes, and all of that's all the self. Well, that can all get really quiet. If I'm still conceiving in terms of subject and objects, awareness and objects of awareness, that's a very subtle conception of self. Once I even have that much, then there's going to be, and the sense of different objects being pleasant or unpleasant, then there's going to be the investment of the subject. The investment. How will experience be? How will objects be for this subject? How will the world of experience be for this self? There's automatically, because of that duality, a sense of investment. Is this making sense? Yeah. That investment feeds the measuring process. So measuring, it's going on, sometimes we're very conscious there's measuring. We're really saying, well, what should I choose here? Hmm, this one or that one? Which is going to give me the most or avoid, avoid, avoid the most unpleasant? A lot of the, most of the measuring is going on much more subtly. But it's the investment in a self-sense. When there's a self-sense, there will be an investment in objects. Brings with it the measuring, brings with it the pushing away what I don't like, the pulling towards what I do like, clinging. Brings with it all this papancha and brings with it dukkha. When there's the investment of the self, it brings with it dukkha. And it also brings with it the arising of the world, the arising of the world of appearance and experiences. Because I, I can see in practice, when I keep letting go of identification and ownership, I keep letting go, this world of appearances fades, begins to fade, it begins to fade, 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 fade. So I need this self-sense to create, to build a world of experiences. And we begin to see, in practicing this way, to understand how our world, the world that we take so for granted, this world of things and selves and others and space and time, how it's actually fabricated by this measuring and conceiving. It's actually built, it's fabricated. Including, including the sense of time. This is where it gets really kind of uh, mind-boggling in a way begin to see when I really let go of the sense of self and the identification even the sense of time begins to fade past, future and present and present you can see why is that this self I may have something for this subject that I like and then I'm invested how will the next moment be want to keep it how, how long can I keep it 
I'm invested in time, and the investment in time and measuring actually builds the sense of time to consciousness. Or I don't want it, how long is it going to last? Will it go away? What's the next moment got in store for me? Time sense is being built as well. So, if we're faithful to these practices, all this can actually unfold in our practice. In our practice, we can actually begin to see this begin to unravel. So, conceiving in self, but also conceiving in things, believing in things, and in particularly in the dualities of things. So, subject, object, yes. Um, pleasant and unpleasant, like I talked about before, now and then. These are all dualities, then in the future or then in the past. These are all dualities, this and that. When I conceive in that way and I believe in that way, measurement comes. And that measurement ex- exacerbated by this identification with a self-sense because of the investment that a self-sense will have. And that draws it out. It draws all these dualities out. It separates them. It demarcates them. It brings them out. makes them prominent to consciousness. It gives substance to what otherwise has no substance. Nothing, nothing whatsoever has any substance other than what's given it, given it to, given to it by us through conceiving and delusion and measurement and clinging. But we, the, the mind builds, it builds reality, it makes it prominent to, to consciousness, to perception. And then we react, we cling, the whole thing just kind of loops around on itself in this almost untangible way. And we suffer. We suffer because of that. So again, to, just to really reinforce this point, all of it is mutually dependent. It's not this first going on to this, not a linear process in time. That could be frustrating, that it just feels like a mass of spaghetti that's unentanglable. But it's also, because everything's feeding everything else, it's also then the case that there's many kind of strands of spaghetti we can start nibbling on, so to speak. You can actually approach this from any angle, from many different angles. So I can approach it from the clinging angle, I could approach it from the measuring angle, I could approach it from the conceiving angle, I could approach it from the self angle, I could approach it... There is a problem in it being complicated to the point of unentanglability, but there's also opportunity there. We can actually uh, find our way into this unbinding, and into the truth of this, through many different approaches. So as if that wasn't enough, (laughs) the knower, the mind, the awareness, that which knows, that too is built in the process. That too is built in the same process. Uh, We can, it's very tempting to feel like, well there is a mind that's doing all this, or there is something that's aware of, of that, we can at least say that. But that too is built in the process. There's nothing outside of this dependent arising. This is where, uh, so the mind, objects, and time, this sense of time as something real, all of that is built together. They they build and they reinforce each other. It's said, I don't know where this is from, it said that 
unless your jaw is hanging down almost to the floor, you haven't really understood dependent origination. <laughs> There's something completely and utterly radical about this stuff. Compl- the mind conceptually actually can't really fully approach it. That doesn't mean it's not possible to penetrate it and untangle it and experience that unbinding uh, with, with, through practice. Uh, but there's a limit to how far the conceptual mind can go in understanding it. The world and the mind are empty. They're empty because they depend on this building process. We could ask, I can build a lot. And we see when, when we got really a lot of papancha, we made a whole big issue about something and everything's, st- and we're really seeing a situation a certain way. And build, you know, you've had a, something with your... Um, partner or, or your friend or, or whatever it is, and building this storm up, and you're really building it, and the self is coming in, a big self sense, really building it a lot on one extreme. I can build less than that. Just calm down a little bit and, you know, build less, build less. In practice, build less, build less, build less. It's all built. Where on that continuum, as I build less, the world of experience appears less solid and, and, and fades more and more. Where on that continuum of building is the, is the point that reveals the real world? Do you understand? Where reveal, which, which stance? There's no place to stand that reveals the real world. There's no amount of self-sense that reveals the real object. There's no amount of clinging or not clinging, that reveals the real object, the real world, the real way things are. Things are empty, they are fabricated. More or less or less is possible to, uh, or we might ask, is it possible? The Buddha says it's possible to actually go, go completely beyond fabricating. So this we need to understand, and he, he says... If we don't understand this, we travel in samsara endlessly, in this round, endlessly. And he says, people who don't understand, people who don't understand, their endless traveling in samsara is only a journey of ignorance. In other words, ignorance, this misunderstanding of reality is what's feeding all of this and making it seem so real. And they, and they can't get away. If, you, if we don't understand, we cannot get away from the round, which he says, the round, samsara, is a thisness and an otherwiseness. In other words, we have this experience. It's this thing and a, and a thing that's not this thing. It's a duality. This and that, this and that, this and that. Endless stream of this and that and this and that. And we can't get away in our life from this and that. And this is that we like and this is that we don't like. And that's that we like and don't like. And we suffer. And we're trapped in a world of this and that and this and that. Trapped in a world of this and that if we don't understand. And so understanding is the most important thing. But he also points, it's possible to go beyond. He says, uh, in one dialogue with with someone, he said, knowing the destruction of all that is fabricated if you know the destruction of all that is fabricated, all this is fabricated, everything is fabricated, you know the unmade, you know what is unmade. 
we know the destruction of the fabricated, we, we then know the unmade, what is, what is not fabricated. Is there something that is not fabricated, that is not built in this process? Another, another instance, he says, where name, name and form, in other words, where the movement of the perceiving mind and the perception of form, where the movement of the perceiving mind and the perception of form are completely cut off, it is there that the tangle gets untangled, or the tangle gets snapped, is what he says. Where movements of the perceiving mind and the perception of form are untangled, or are completely cut off, that is where the tangle gets snapped. Someone asks Sariputta, when that happens, when the consciousness goes that deep in, in its untangling, its journey of untangling, could you say this? something left then? And he said, don't say that. Don't say there's something left. All right, could you say there's nothing left? He said, don't say that either. Could you say there's both something left and not something left? Don't say that. Could you say there's neither something left nor not something left? Don't say that either. What's left is beyond notions of being and not being. Beyond notions of existing and not existing. So there's a word that we use, immeasurable, and we use it in, a, in, or in the Dharma, it's used in a number of different contexts. Um, we talk about the Brahma Viharas, uh, loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity being immeasurable in their extent. They're just uh, a heart that's opened immeasurably to include all. Or sometimes the sense of consciousness in what's called infinite consciousness can actually open so that that sense of consciousness too also becomes immeasurable, wide, infinitely wide. That sense of infinite consciousness can be either with nothing arising in that consciousness in terms of the sense doors or we're still hearing a little bit and sounds, etc. But consciousness infinitely wide, infinitely expansive. But there's another way of using this word immeasurable and, and it points to what's beyond this building process. Nibbana, what's beyond this building process. And it's really, we could say, beyond measure in the sense of being beyond any dimensionality. It's not of space. It doesn't have dimensions in space. It's not of time. It doesn't exist in time in the past or in the future or in the present. Beyond space, beyond time. Um, th- it's the mind that creates measure. The, this building process is building measuring and uh, measuring uh, space and time as well as something, aspects of our experience that get built through measuring. So sometimes for... In talking about Nibbana and talking about the unfabricated, the Buddha a couple of occasions talks about consciousness or knowing without feature. In other words, not knowing anything. It's not knowing anything in the usual sense, but without limit. Anantam is the Pali. Anantam, without limit. But it's a different kind of limit than the infinite expanse. What's really important here is to see that all this is actually a continuum of understanding. We can build things, measure things, cling, fabricate, 
believe in reality a lot, really extremely. A lot of papancha, a lot of storm, a lot of all this. Everything seems so real and we're feeding that process. And we can do that less and less and less. There's a continuum of fading. As we let go more, as we see into this process, there's a real continuum of the fading. It's possible to go beyond all building. But what's important to see is that there's a real continuum. It's a continuum. And we can move, we do move on that continuum. Practice allows us a greater range of moving on that continuum, especially when we pick up working with the three characteristics and these kind of things that I was talking about, then we can move more on that continuum. Things fade more. What's more important is the understanding that uh, things are being built. Things are being built all the time, even when it feels like I'm just sitting here innocently being. Things are being built. And in being built, they're empty. They're empty. There's no real way things are. So this is something what's really, really important to hope that you take, is that we can actually practice this. This is the amazing thing. We can practice in ways that build less. One way of conceiving of practice that would actually include the whole of the Dharma, the whole of the Dharma. So what is Dharma practice? To build to understand how we build suffering and experience, to understand both how suffering and, more deeply, how experience itself is built, and to learn to let go of that building process. To understand the way we build suffering and experience and let go of that. To, to put the Dharma like that, actually, that, that would, in a way, cover all the teachings on generosity and ethics and samadhi and loving kindness, all of it would, would fit in there. You can sum up the whole of Dharma teachings that way. Understanding how we build suffering and experience, through that understanding, learning to not. Learning to not. We can practice this and we can get better and better and better and more and more skilled in the art of not building. In that process, understanding the fabricated nature. When one sees that this is fabricated, freedom, freedom. It's just, it, as I said at the beginning, we suffer because we misunderstand what's real and what's not real. When we begin to see that the things that we suffer over are not real in the way that they seem to be, freedom, unbinding, unbinding. Just to finish from that uh, beautiful poem from the faith in the heart, I just want to read a few stanzas just to finish, uh, very briefly. These are much later in the poem. It's basically about what we've been talking about. It says, The duality of all things issues from false discriminations, a dream, an illusion, a flower in the sky, how could they be worth grasping? Gain and loss, right and wrong, discard them all at once. It goes on. If the eyes do not close in sleep, all dreams will naturally cease. If the mind makes no discriminations, all things are of one suchness. To understand the essence of one suchness 
is to be released from all entanglements. And to this ultimate finality, no laws or descriptions, no rules nor measures apply. Let's just have a minute of silence together.